broadcasting from Montreal. This is The Korea File, a podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, you might think that a country that deposed a shaman-loving president has seen it all. But as the Moon Jae-in government digs through the confidential files of the conservative Park Geun-hye and Im Young-bak administrations, the emerging scandal might surprise you. In this conversation with prominent blogger Ask a Korean, we unpack the spy-ops and psyops that have informed more than a decade of alt-right agitation in South Korea. Plus, a look into the anti-democratic overreach of the National Intelligence Service. And a deep dive into the origins of Ilbe, Korea's nihilistic proto-Reddit web forum and 4chan and Breitbart predecessor. And an analysis of the diminished status of South Korea's political right-wing today. Also, three fundamental questions that establish first principles when talking about North Korea. May the North Korean state continue to exist? May the Kim Jong-un regime remain in power? And is war acceptable on the Korean peninsula? Ask a Korean's answers to all three questions is an emphatic no. This conversation was recorded on January 28, 2018. <laughs> You've written that the South Korean right, the ideologically conservative side of the political spectrum, didn't develop in step with democracy in the country. In fact, the right worshipped military dictators, including Park Chung-hye, who ruled for nearly two decades until his assassination in the late 70s, as they would a king. You say that the right are not conservatives, since this term presumes a liberal democratic system, and you suggest that fascist would be a more appropriate description. But this claim would receive a lot of pushback from mainstream opinion in Korea and the States, wouldn't it? It would, but only in a sense that not, not even fascists appreciate being called a fascist. But if we are if we are sort of rigorous about what words mean and how words are defined, then fascist has to be the only the only correct definition to describe South Korean conservatives because it's, it's not as if they have a strong fealty to liberal democracy. Put it this way. Mm-hmm. Even U.S. conservatives, you know, I think uh, right nowadays it's, they're sort of sliding starting to sort of slide towards authoritarianism under the Trump administration. But even U.S. conservatives at least sort of couch their position in the language of liberty, in the language of American democracy. But that's not the case in, in Korea's uh, history of the rights. Uh, South Korean conservatives don't even bother to do that. Their only identity, only political identity really is being against North Korea and communism and if if you are that without taking a stand on the on the basic principle of liberalism, then liberalism, then you can't be possibly called a liberal democrat. Right, and Korea's right wing's always been contemptuous of democracy. They've always favored dictatorship, as we're saying, and they've always favored jailing communists, which was a catch-all phrase describing any kind of political dissident in recent history. So this included the massacre of civilians on Jeju Islands throughout the 1950s. I think it included the killing of civilians in the Gwangju uprising of 1980. And then what about the Yushin Constitution? Can you refresh my memory about that right yeah and uh what you described just now is completely correct uh as to yushin constitution the park chong 
probably the most significant dictator that South Korea had ever endured, basically sought to make himself a lifetime president, and that's what Yushin Constitution was about. He was he sought to make himself a lifetime president and essentially put South Korea into a permanent state of martial law. Uh, and it is a it, it's a major stain in the history of South Korean democracy. Even people who are willing to give some credit to Park Chung-hee because of his initiative to develop the South Korean economy cannot possibly defend the Yushin Constitution. You know, if we are talking about whether South Korean conservatives are are conservatives or fascists, you know, it is their their praise of the Yushin Constitution where they really truly do reveal their true colors. You say that it's the internet that propelled Korea into the forefront of the world in the 21st century. And for this, you give credit to the late political dissident, political prisoner, and Nobel Prize winner, ex-president Kim Dae-jung. What role did KDJ play in bringing about the extremely wired South Korea of today? Yeah, he was, he really was a visionary, and this is one of the very underrated uh, achievements that uh, that he made. That he had the foresight to see the potential in high-speed internet. So during his during his time, Korea, South Korea, I actually re, uh, remember this period very vividly because there was about a stretch of six months to a year when like a lot of roads were just not drivable. Suddenly they dug up everything and, and they were uh, they were burying cables. And suddenly, uh, really in the matter of just a few months to a year, Korea went from dial-up to high-speed internet. Where And this transition for most of the, uh, most of the rest of the world uh, has taken years and years and years. Um, in certain parts of, I'd say, even very advanced countries in Europe, uh, the internet there is just just agonizingly slow. So, just putting together the hardware, um, put it just laying down the hardware foundation is really a key a key, uh, key contribution that the Kim Dae-jung administration made. As an aside, KDJ also sometimes gets credit as being like the father of K-pop in the sense that his administration developed policies focusing on cultural exportation. Do you think that's accurate? I would reserve that kind of term for some uh, an artist rather than a politician. But it is true that he laid down the sort of the policy-baked foundation for K-pop to flourish globally, that much is certainly Mm. accurate. Okay, the deeply ingrained tradition of violent reactionary, arguably combined with a level of internet saturation that the rest of the world is still catching up to, brings us to South Korea's new right wing, which traces its origins to the DC Inside website. What was DC Inside? To bottom line it, DC Inside is basically Reddit, but the, the origin of that site is uh, it was a discussion board for various types of digital cameras. The DC part uh, stands for digital camera. And initially, it really was that. Initially, they had galleries where they, uh, the users would post pictures of um, you know, the pictures that we took, they took with their digital cameras and talk about things. And, it, and over time, those galleries basically started to develop into something that had nothing to do with photography. People simply started talking about different things depending on what they wanted to talk about. And like very popular 
something like baseball gallery or comedy gallery and we're just all they're doing is they just uh post random pictures and talk about uh talk about what they want to talk about and this sort of became the progenitor of this sort of this visual meme culture that very common in high speed internet today. Right, and it predates it predates Reddit. So how by did it six become years? ideological? Uh Ilgan best Jojang So was that kind of what it transitioned into on its way to becoming like a right wing hate site? Right. So uh among the DCN size galleries, it was uh the baseball gallery and the comedy gallery that were sort of, that became this total cesspool, for lack of a better word. Uh it became it's not. I'm not even sure if ideological is necessarily the right term. It is more that the pe- the users were more focused on just coming up with pictures and words that were the most offensive thing possible, and it was more of an id-driven uh, activity than a, a, a ideological thing. Because if you say ideological, that seems to imply that you through what you're going to say. And it wasn't that. Even eBay, uh, the worst material from the DC inside splintered off and became this the depository of the daily best, the daily best jokes, basically. But that essentially became the cesspool of the cesspool, sort of the, the ISIS that came out of the Al-Qaeda, so to speak. And there, uh, truly, truly offensive things proliferated and what happened was that in their search for you know making the most saying the most offensive things possible what they came to latch on was that you know saying insulting korea's south korea's democracy was really the most offensive thing possible mm-hmm. some ilbay activist is not the right word but some ilbay participants came into the spotlight when they trolled Sewol. Say well, hunger strikers. It was some parents of some of the children who had died, and they had like a pizza party in front of the hunger strikers, and it was so disgusting. So that was more like an active, like active on the ground kind of participation in Korean public life. But primarily, it was an online thing and not an active thing. Correct? Right. Uh, I think uh, rather than putting it that way, I think I would describe it as it's something that started as an online thing, but it's gaining momentum to a point that it was no longer just an online thing anymore. Uh, it spilled into the streets and it became sort of the sort of the main vehicle um, for the for South Korea's conservative slash outright to really just like they that was their community. I'd say something like 4chan. It, it became basically Korea's version of 4chan if 4chan people were uh, actually, actually, sort of organized on the ground and started affecting sort of sort of street level politics. Yeah, and the photographs were just chilling because it was so cruel, so casually cruel, um, so nihilistic. And so, I guess what I wonder is, uh, what are the root causes of this kind of casual cruelty, this kind of nihilism that we'd see from these provocateurs? Like, what is it in, in, in Korean society? Is it the fascist politics? Is it the sort of uh, that kind of historical lens? Is that how we should be looking at it? I want to actually just like quickly just reemphasize how disgusting because it really, you know, I watch a lot of politics, um, but this really was possibly the most disgusting display of uh, politics I've ever seen in my life where, you know, these 
young men would go in front of hunger-striking parents who just lost their children and eat in front of them to taunt the fact that they uh, they lost their children. It is just just an incredible thing. And in terms of sort of the root causes of the nihilism, I mean, mm-hmm. eBay itself, um, the the whole theme of the website was nihilism. And it is really sort of one of those dark things about human nature is that uh, the Internet sort of revealed and enabled. Because previously, like before the Internet, these, for lack of a better word, and you can edit this out if you want, but these fuckheads, uh, these assholes who just indulge in sadistic uh, pain infliction would be would keep would keep to themselves. Whereas now with the internet they can form their and sort of go competition of trying to outdo each other in terms of gratuitous cruelty and inflicting pain. There is any sort of cause I think that's what it is. The actions, the, the the disgusting, chilling actions that were taking place with the hunger strikers, that would have been late 2014 or early 2015, is predated by some of the more formal political stuff, which I found really interesting in your piece up at your blog, Ask a Korean. So let's talk about the 2012 elections. They resulted in a victory for the now deposed, jailed Park Geun-hye over present president and residents of the Blue House Moon Jae-in. These elections were exceptionally corrupt and included spy ops, psyops, memes, and fake news against liberal politics and politicians, all driven by the National Intelligence Service, the South Korean equivalent to the CIA or the FBI. So um, the NIS have a really noble history, don't they? <laughs> That's one way of putting it, yes. Give me a little background. The NIS are basically like the you know secret police of the curfew era, the dictatorship era, the, the military era, correct? Basically, yeah. It, uh, it was the CIA and the KGB of South Korea, essentially. It is intended to be a spy agency but it always was more than that. And especially during the dictatorship era, uh, the NIS was a major sort of an enforcement arm of the dictatorship aims in terms of, you know, a against uh, civilians, kidnapping and torturing uh, torturing the opposition, assassination attempts and things of that nature. And that, that comes up a lot when reading about that era in Korean history, that it was basically uh, target, targeting domestic uh, citizens. It was targeting Koreans. So the NIS were never depoliticized or professionalized during the post-dictatorship era, like with KDJ or with the progressive pro-democracy regime of Ro Hyun? It was to some degree. It, it took quite a bit of time and actually a very underrated achievement of Romeon was that the NIA um, depoliticization progressed pretty significantly but uh, when the when the conservative administration came back in they uh, reverted right back to their their dictatorship era habits and that really caused some significant damage for the for the past decade. Right. So there were NIS efforts in the 2012 elections to blacklist prominent liberal celebrities. Uh, like like who? Oh, there were, I mean, this list goes in the thousands. So I um, can't possibly name them all, but uh, mm. perhaps the mo- uh, most prominent example is an actor named Moon sung who's a son of uh, a famous uh, reverend and a democracy activist named uh, Moon Yi-kwan. And he was very much of a uh, sort of a, what should I say, with a 
Hollywood celebrity who was also very politically active, maybe Warren Beatty, okay. of, of that figure. And he was not only blacklisted from appearing on sort of any sort of government-funded um, projects or uh, government-owned uh, uh, TV stations, which is nearly all of them in Korea, and, and uh, they, they would also, the NIS would also create these uh, damaging internet memes like with Photoshop, with, with his, him Photoshopped into it, spread them over the internet, uh, a lot of them through eBay. Okay, and the administration of Im Young-bak, who was president from late 2007 to 2012, funded the creation of a conservative media watch website and pressured corporations to buy ads on the site. Uh, has Media Watch been perceived by Koreans as a credible news source? So I'd say a, a good, good analog, good comparison for a media watch is something like uh, Drudge Report or Breitbart, where uh, a lot of, most people, I think, most as in sort of like a little more than a majority, would see those websites as just mouthpieces of the Trump administration. But a significant part of the population would only read that website and take that as the gospel truth. So it's sort of, mm -hmm. uh, the word credible is, is a, um, maybe too broad of a term, but certainly they have a dedicated following. Uh, later on, the Park Gunhae administration even pressured Naver to bury bad news stories from search results, and this included the administration's botched management of the Sewol disaster. You write that... Taken together, it wasn't simply that the conservative government added some trolling firepower to Korea's right wing with fake comments and tweets. Rather, the conservative government was the entire game. The conservative government created political storylines, fed them to the right wing media that the government itself created, used right wing civic groups to repeat them until they became mainstream opinion. The dissident voices were harassed, defamed, fired, and silenced through pressures applied to the media and search engine sites. You say that from start to finish, the conservative government managed the entire process that created a political narrative. So tell us just a little more about this government-sanctioned amplification of Ilbay and that entire conservative maelstrom of cultural and political influence. So it would be one thing. Uh, and I think this is where South Korea's alt-right really sort of is different from uh, any other countries, is that the government shepherded this project from start to finish. And that's the most shocking part. You know, there may be, it may be fair to say that there are these hateful elements within the society. And some, you know, some media or some website benefits by um, you know, amplify these hateful elements and, you know, earn money in the process and have other sort of penal uh, goals. But nothing quite as explicit, I think, uh, as, uh, as it happened in Korea, where the South Korean government was, they created the media narrative, they planted it in these online communities, and once the online community amplified them, they would um, amplify them. And the amplification process also involves the government in the form of fake tweets and fake comments put up by the NIS. Uh, once these things are amplified, then uh, a news site like MediaWatch would pick them up as if they're legitimate news stories. And then 
media watch would repeat it over and over and over again until sort of the the more mainstream conservative newspapers start echoing them. Like the way um, it, it, there's a lot of parallels to this where you can see a, a respectable publication like the Wall Street Journal is starting to echo things that you know Breitbart is saying about uh, the deep state and the Mueller about the Mueller investigation. It becomes uh, becomes more outlandish, more outlandish and more clownish, and it is directly a result of the fact that the South Korean government has been deliberately pushing these storylines until they become mainstream. And that's the one important difference between the political tradition of alt-right media amplification uh, in the United States and in South Korea um, because of that direct influence of government funding. You've suggested that without the efforts of the Im Young-bak and Park Geun-hye administrations to nurture the alt-right with funding, which allowed it to go mainstream, that the movement of reactionary fascist conservatism would have been smaller and its vileness would have been less pronounced. You wrote that, and I liked this a lot, it was the conservative administrations that raised Ilbe to harvest the most toxic fruit. Korea's alt-right, the first alt-right of the world, was a government startup. That's such a sinister statement. Yeah, I don't know how else to put it. It really was a government startup in a sense that uh, the government encouraged these health, these hateful elements in Korea to become, to get together. Um, the government pushed the storyline. You know, Yubei may have started as a group of disaffected young men trying to say the most offensive things. But what would happen is that they, uh, whenever they say they said bad things about democracy and liberals, uh, it would be the government operatives that would push that, that would propel those things even further in that sense, and even further all the way until it became mainstream opinion, uh, which would sort of give a sense of power, uh, a sense of empowerment to these online trolls. And mm -hmm. that really is just an incredible thing, just an incredible thing, as offensive of an assault against democracy as any other. But the story has a happy ending, in late October, on your popular, widely read Ask a Korean blog, you wrote that the new liberal administration of Moon Jae-in was riding high in public opinion polls with a 70% approval rating. So I was wondering, in light of the nuclear tensions on the peninsula and with the lead-up to the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics, is that level of support holding four months later? Uh, no, and it's been a, it's been a tough couple. It's been a tough several weeks for the administration, uh, with North Korea participating in um, in the Pyeongchang Olympics. Um, that really did sort of splinter off the part of Moon Jae-in's uh, support that wanted a harder line against North Korea. His support is still quite high, still north of 60%, but it's sort of that it definitely went through some level of adjustment. Mm -hmm. Politically, though, uh, his opponents, Korea's conservative parties, were in shambles in October, split into several parties, and scrambling to find the core from which to begin their rebuilding process. So, have there been any recent developments on that front? Right. And they're still trying to get their footing, and uh, it's been they've been engaged in this this highly cynical partisanship, basically trying to kneecap the kneecap the Winter Olympics by smearing it as 
uh, of Pyongyang Olympics as opposed to Pyeongchang Olympics, uh, basically criticizing North Korea's participation in it. That gave them a little bit of a breathing room, but they're still languishing in the low keen support for liberty. Pardon is languishing in the uh, in around like five percent support. What's the difference between Barun and Liberty? These are two different conservative parties. The Liberty Korean pa- Liberty Korea Party, following the impeachment of Park Geun-hye, uh, the main conservative party split into two, and basically the difference was whether uh, the conservative party would continue to support Park Geun-hye or not. The Liberty Party, which is the slightly larger party, um, continues to support Park Geun-hye and says, and says that she was framed, none of this, um, all these evidence, all the evidence was fabricated, and she didn't do anything wrong. It is all a plot by uh, the communists to overthrow the government. Harden sort of uh, came out and said, "Look, uh, we we're still conservatives, but uh, it's pretty clear that." Pakine was involved in this corruption, and we cannot be in this. Uh, we cannot be in this situation anymore. And it is quite telling. Again, it is quite telling uh, what the composition of South Korean conservatives are, because Liberty has about triple the support of Pakine. And what happened to Anshul Su's People's Party? So Anshul Su's People's Party was prior to impeachment of Pakine. There was sort of an intramural fight among South Korea's liberals. And uh, basically the fight was whether they they would triangulate versus take the more progressive pack. And Antarctica's People's Party was sort of the, oh, let's uh, triangulate, uh, be selectively, uh, take on selectively conservative positions. And they splintered off and splintered off and re- became fairly successful, it, it, successful as in it was uh, it was able to survive on its own uh, rather than collapsing, nearly collapsing altogether like Biden. But lately they've been, because Moon Jae-in's Democratic Party has been going so strong, that People's Party in, in comparison is has gotten significantly weak. And now they are uh, considering a merger with Biden Party to see if they can create a center-right party. And it, that that merger process has been pretty fraught. So it's, mm. that's been another amusing side show. President Moon, who was elected with like forty two percent of the vote or something like that. I mean, this is really a <laughs> he's really blessed with uh, incompetence in his opposition right now. Right, and it was. I think that forty something percent is misleading. It is also he also won with the greatest, uh, the largest margin of victory in presidential election history in right. the Democratic era. I mean, he, he was blessed, but he was blessed by the opposition being fractured, but it really is sort of the natural result of things. I, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody can seriously defend, like Liberty's, Liberty Party members are, uh, notwithstanding, anybody can seriously defend uh, Park Geun-hye's rank corruption. I don't think anyone can seriously defend uh, Lee Myung-bak administration uh, use of spy agency uh, against liberals, and to be quite frank, the the forces that literally oppose democracy have no place within democracy. Right, and the 
investigations into the numerous violations of democratic rule during the Im Young-bak and Park Geun-hye eras are fully underway. A lot of former administration officials are headed to prison. Uh, Park Geun-hye herself is already in jail. And even former President Im Young-bak might also be prison-bound in the near future. Is that right? Right. He is a, He is now considered a suspect of the suspect in the investigation. The arrest warrant has not come out yet, but it should come. I think the, I believe that the prosecutor's office recently announced that they will probably seek the arrest warrant in March after the Olympics. Emil Bach's office had been raided already, so I think it will be just a matter of time. And this leaves Ilbe significantly weakened from its peak in 2014. Does the website continue to be influential today, particularly uh, with the recent wave of inter-Korean talks happening? Or do you think the alt-right is a spent force in South Korean society? I think it I think both is true. It is, it is weaker. Um, it is weaker than compared to its peak. I, I think it is on its way out, but it, its influence is still quite strong, and it, it, its hold over South Korea's conservative is still quite strong. So recently, there was an amusing episode that did, I wish I could laugh at it, but I could. This is what happened for Moon Jae-in's birthday. Some of his supporters bought an ad, out, took an ad out in Times Square in New York, basically saying, happy birthday, Mr. President. And this much was fairly innocuous. Uh, and then the next day, what happened was some eBay members bought an ad on the exact same billboard showing um, Roman Young's, uh photoshopped picture. There's an infamous photoshopped picture of Roman Young where he is made to look like a koala. And that particular image is really uh, really infamous because it's an image that the NIS commissioned psychiatrists to come up with the Photoshop image that would be the most damaging to Nguyen's image. And that's what they came up with. So they're still using that image and putting it up in, uh, put it in the middle, middle of Times Square um, just to you know, raise the raise middle finger against Mujahid supporters. So this is very much a live issue and still ongoing. As we begin to wrap up, I did want to touch a little bit on uh, your most recent uh, piece at the Ask a Korean blog. In the piece, you provide a framework of analysis, which I thought was really instructive for how to think about thinking when it comes to thinking about North Korea. So you call North Korean participation in the upcoming Olympics uh, as inconsequential. Why, Why do you say that? Because... Looking back on the history of North Korea's participation in sort of international sporting events, it goes back all the way to 1991. You know, it's been nearly a full generation, and it's not clear if North Korea's participation in the international events moved the needle one way or the other. You write of the three fundamental questions, as you see them, that establish the first principles about North Korea. And those are, may the North Korean state continue to exist? You say no. May the Kim Jong-un regime remain in power? Again, you say no. And is a war acceptable in the Korean Peninsula? Emphatically, no. And I found it really interesting how you just unpack it and break it down and give really clear statements. You say the North Korean state cannot exist because the division of the Korean Peninsula is a historical tragedy that's got to be rectified. What do you mean by that? I mean that, I mean that the division of North Korea 
should not have happened. It happened only because the two rival powers during the Cold War saw it to be convenient. Uh, the, the Soviet Union and the United States divided a country that was a single nation for 2,000 years and divided into two because it was politically convenient. And that alone is just not something that is tenable, in my view. It is a division that no one wanted. It, the division caused so many deaths and other tragedies, and it must be rectified. The uh, conference that happened in Vancouver last week, organized by uh, Canada's uh, liberal government of Justin Trudeau and the American State Department. I don't know if you caught a lot about that. Um, did you hear about who was participating? Oh, uh, no, I have not. Okay. It was uh, all of the old friends who were under the UN command back in the 50s, including Greece, Colombia, and others. China didn't come. North Korea obviously wasn't invited. Russia wasn't invited. It was basically Rex Tillerson sitting at a conference table with the South Korean ambassador, um, who clearly looked like she wished she was somewhere else, and uh, Christia Freeland, our foreign minister. It was a huge joke, and it kind of uh, really indicated how it's so possible to still have a Cold War perspective about these uh, about the Korean issue, the issue of uh, separate, uh, separated Korea. Um, so again, that's that's why I really liked how you emphasized that it's a historical anomaly that the Koreans are a part, and that has to be part of the way people think about the entire issue of the tensions on the peninsula right now. Okay, next, you say that no, the Kim regime can't continue because... It's a murderous dictatorship. This is also really important, I think, because, I mean, it can't go without saying. We have to be reminded. No, I think if you look at sort of the historical scale of just how murderous this dictatorship has been, the Kim regime is, in terms of sort of the proportion of population killed, we are, we are in the sort of the Mao Zedong, Pol Pot stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And it's not discussed with enough indignation, I think, mm -hmm. that uh, the Kim regime is still existing today when, while, when, um, while Saddam Hussein, in my view, was, you know, he was obviously a bad person and bad ruler, and, but U.S., you know, concocted reasons to invade, uh, invade Iraq and depose them in the name of spreading freedom and with North, uh, with North Korea, there is no no discussion of regime change that connects to human rights. That's mm -hmm. uh, there, there's plenty of discussion about the, about regime change that change that connects to the fact that uh, Kim, the Kim regime has a nuclear weapon that it might that it might turn towards the United States. But I have I'm yet to see you know a, a human rights issue taking the center stage of the North Korea discussion. Well. Part of it is that while we're having the conversation about the human rights issue, the solution that the United States often uh, reaches for is war, is confrontation. And as you say in your third point, is war acceptable in the Korean Peninsula? No, it's not, because the consequences of a war would be too terrible. We hear some figures bandied about like 100,000 people dead in 48 hours. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right, yes. I mean, so this is unthinkable. And so when we're having the conversation about the uh, morbid 
human rights abuses in the North. Okay, my point is, I like that you're able to have both of those thoughts at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. They, they uh, contrast. They're not comfortable together. Because it's a human rights abuser, it seems like it would be great to vanquish them. But that's absolutely not an option. So I like how you pursued this intellectually. So I think we're seeing promising signs uh, from President Moon's administration in the sense that engagement can lead towards potentially a new sunshine policy. And you say that these answers make your policy choice clear. You see a need for a course of action that makes the North Korean state disappear, the Kim regime exit power while avoiding war. And so you say that the original sunshine policy envisioned by Kim Dae-jung in his Berlin declaration would be the way forward. So the Sunshine policy, as you see it, what would that look like? I think the original Sunshine policy got a really bad rap. Uh, it is usually rema- it's usually considered as an engagement policy, but it is not just an engagement policy. The number one condition for Sunshine policy in the Berlin Declaration was zero tolerance for military population. And that's a very important point. During the two liberal administrations, uh, the Kim Dae-jung and Roman, when they were pursuing the Sunshine policy, there were North Korean military provocations um, in the Yellow uh, Sea in the form of naval skirmishes. And both the administration responded to them decisively and utterly destroyed any attempts for provocation. Whereas in the following um, conservative administration, the supposedly tough on North Korea, Yongbak administration, the ROK ship Chonan was stuck by a North Korean submarine. And what was the what was Yongbak's response to that? He installed some more speakers along the DMZ, and then uh, North Korea shelled one of the um, outer laying islands in the Yellow Sea, uh, Yongpyongdo. And again, what was the response to that? Did they uh, did South Korea fight back and uh, destroy the shot artillery base that shelled the shelled the island? No, they only added more speakers and uh, put on some more san- sanctions that were not all that effective and called it a day. So we need to sort of think about sunshine policy as this militarily muscular policy, uh, in a in a way that clearly shows shows North Korea that if they do not engage, if they try to if they try anything in terms of the military, they will be utterly destroyed. Such that their only choice is to engage. Interesting. Okay. So that's your vision for a new sunshine policy moving forward. Uh, but one of the really unpredictable elements right now is that To my mind, the United States has become a really chaotic factor. And so the near-term outcome of inter-Korean engagement seems really unpredictable, uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm so excited to see any kind of collaboration, whether it's meaningful or not, with this Olympic moment. Um, So do you see the United States in any way playing the role of a good actor moving forward? I hope so. Gosh. Um, I I hope so. A lot of North Korea's action, in fact, I'd say even majority of it, is focused on what uh, what the United States wants to do in relation to North Korea. You know, uh, and and North Korea 
does not really believe that South Korea has a veto power over the United States. So unless the United States can hold its uh, unless the United States can you know hold its word and uh, and make meaningful promises that will that it will keep, uh, it will not. Uh, whatever dialogue that the two Koreas may have may not be enough to uh, create lasting peace. Are you optimistic about the future? I always am because if I, there are too many reasons to be pessimistic, and I give in to that, that, that will just be the end. That, that will just lead to despair and inaction. So I always try to find hope and find a way to move forward. Ask a Korean is a prominent and widely read blogger at askakorean.blogspot.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at askakorean. Ask a Korean, thanks for speaking with the Korea file. Thank you. That's the Korea file for this month. Throw this podcast a few dollars at patreon.com forward slash the Korea file for access to exclusive interviews. Music on this episode is Shim Subang with Good Day, Gusaram. You can find Ask a Korean's most recent piece on North Korea, Thinking About Thinking, at askakorean.blogspot.com. Follow him on Twitter at Ask a Korean. I'm on there too, at Andre Margoulet. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher, and as a feature contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Seoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find the Korea file there too, with links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. And check back wherever you found this podcast in early March for a new episode. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. Jenny